This podcast is brought to you by New Hope Baptist Church. For more information, visit the website newhope.net.au or follow us on social media. convention is that at the moment of publication, a book is done. I mean, sure, an author can change their mind, but they can't go back and change the black marks pressed into bone white paper, entombed between two bookends. Which is why I was so interested recently to listen to the African-American author Kiese Lehman talk about breaking this convention. Lehman bought back the rights to his first two books for more than 10 times he was paid to write them. They were a book of essays and a novel. He sold his novel Long Division for $4,000. It sold pretty well, but the reality is he didn't make a lot of money off it. But he bought it back for more than $50,000. And while part of the reason he did this is because he wanted to control and own the rights of his own creative work, He mainly did it because there were parts of his books he wanted to change. And I don't mean superficially. He literally remade his book of essays, taking out a whole bunch of them, adding in new ones, and completely revising the rest of them beyond recognition. Now, you'd kind of think intuitively that Lehman did this because he wanted to improve the originals. He says he's actually not sure that he did that. And actually, that wasn't the point. What he was aiming to do was to make them truer. Truer to who he is, truer to how he sees the world. What I love about what Kiese Lehman is doing here is that he is practicing the lost art of revision. In a world in which we are reviled for changing our minds, in a world where a social media post we made as a teenager can come back to haunt us and cause us to lose our job, Layman is reclaiming our right to change our mind. He's making it clear that he doesn't know everything, that he's still learning, that he has blind spots and he gets things wrong, that new experiences bring out new understandings and he wants to remain open open to the possibility of seeing things differently. All of which to say is that he believes that revision is at the heart of what it means to be human. K.A.C. Lehman talks about revision as, and I quote, the dynamic practice of revisitation, premised on reimagining the ingredients and the scope of our initial vision. So this morning, I want to invite you to embrace the practice of revision as a profound act of faithfulness. I want to say with deep conviction that the testimony of Scripture is a testimony of the unfolding revelation of a God whose steadfast love endures forever and who is always on the move, which places revision 
at the heart of what it means to be a disciple. I mean, just imagine for a second if your image of God had frozen on the day you left Sunday school. Ask yourself if your faith would still be a vital reality in your life today if you hadn't wrestled with those really big questions that caused you to shift your understanding. Now, I would wager that here this morning, none of us believe that God wants to leave us in the exact same place in which he found us. And no one's life goal is to be a five-year-old in a 50-year-old's body. A 50-year-old in a 25-year-old's body, now that's something I'd seriously consider. I don't know about you, but I digress. As human beings, we are constantly negotiating this continuum between stability and change. We need stability. We need a foundation. We need a home base. We need to be grounded. But too much stability, and we become stuck Every day becomes our own personal Groundhog Day. And in this place, our relationship with God becomes like one of those couples you see in a restaurant who have been married for 50 years, who spend the entire meal not talking to one another. Now, while that is a companionable silence that has a wonderful lot of value, the reality is you wouldn't want that to be the only dynamic in your relationship. Because we also need to change. Because change brings vitality and it brings energy and it produces learning. Change keeps life interesting and it keeps us interested in life. But just like stability, if we have too much change, if there are too many pieces in our life moving at once, it becomes overwhelming and we're deeply discombobulated. The dynamics of stability and change are everywhere in scripture, aren't they? I mean, the stability of slavery in Egypt and the instability of 40 years wandering in the desert, the stability of a settled life in the promised land followed by exile in Babylon, the stability of worship focused on the Jerusalem temple followed by its utter destruction. And what we see in scripture is in these moments of transition, as the familiar and the stable are deeply disrupted, What we see at play are the dynamics of revision. God moves, drawing us into or allowing us to experience moments and periods of profound change. And in that moment, so many things we thought we knew suddenly go up in smoke. And a faithful response in that moment isn't to dig our heels in and to cling to our old ways and keep repeating the same worn-out answers we've been using forever. It is revision that is the faithful response to the movement of God in our lives. But that doesn't make it easy. Sometimes we cling to the stability of what we know even when we realise it's no longer working for us. Because, I mean, at least it's familiar. I mean, we were in Egypt, sweating it out, our arms straining and our eyes on the form and counting bricks, longing for that moment when the whistle would blow and we would be free from our day's work. And while we longed for things to change, lying in our bed at night, absolutely exhausted, the truth is we prayed more regularly 
for good weather to ease our day's work than we did for a saviour. Because sometimes it's hard to embrace change. Sometimes it's even hard to imagine that change is possible, even in the midst of the present not working. But God doesn't abandon us when our imaginations fail. Yahweh comes demanding our freedom, tormenting our oppressors with plagues just as we have been tormented by the plague of endless labour. And then Yahweh calls us out beyond our certainties, out beyond our fears, and he parts the seas and liberates us in a journey towards a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, who even knew that kind of change was possible? See, if at any moment, if Abraham or Isaac or Moses or Ruth or David or Isaiah or Mary or John the Baptist had closed their lives and their minds to the work of God, challenging their expectations, disrupting their settled answers and drawing them out beyond the limits of their certainty, we would simply not have the Bible that we have today. We'd have a science textbook the anatomy of God, God dissected in 36 full-colour illustrations, which is another way of saying we wouldn't have a God at all. We'd simply have an algorithm. The testimony of Scripture is that if we're going to see what God is doing amongst us and through us and within us, we need to be willing to reimagine the ingredients and the scope of the vision we have of who God is and how God works and what God wants for us and for this world. Which is why the very first word that Jesus speaks in his public ministry is repent. Revision. Rethink the direction of your entire life for the kingdom of God is at hand. We see this dynamic of revision at here in this passage we've been lingering with over the last couple of weeks in the book of Acts. After Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the disciples, of course, are huddled together, not knowing what to do, in a room in Jerusalem, when the Holy Spirit comes and literally sets their hair on fire. And suddenly they start babbling like drunks in languages they never went to school for raising a holy chorus of heavenly praise in languages the Israelites thought were unworthy to praise the God who dwelt in the holiest of holies just a couple of streets away. And after the flames subside, the disciples scratch their singed hair, wondering, what on earth just happened? And what does it mean? At this point, even the great Peter doesn't get it. I mean, sure, he stands up and he preaches a cracker of a sermon, but it's a sermon directed solely to the people of Israel, even though the Holy Spirit has just come and burnt the wall down between the Jews and the Gentiles. But like seeds in the Australian bush that can be only germinated by fire, Pentecost unleashes this season of extraordinary growth and amazing renewal. As Peter and John and the apostles work signs and wonders and speak the word of God revealed in Jesus with such boldness that so many are added to their number. And, but even as this small trickle of Jesus' followers begins to turn into a stream 
God keeps pressing Peter's buttons, disrupting his vision of the kingdom of God with visions and visitors that stretch and pull at the edges of the settled limits Peter has known. I mean, it's there in black and white, isn't it? In Leviticus chapter 20, God says there are clean animals and there are unclean animals. Do not touch or eat the unclean animals. But what do you do? When you're standing on a rooftop and every kind of animal you've been told not to eat suddenly gets lowered down on a picnic blanket and the voice of God from heaven says, Peter, dig in, it's time to eat. But when Peter shakes his head and backs away, God corrects him and says, what I have made clean, you must never profane. I mean, talk about revision. What happened to Leviticus 20? I mean, right there is a double somersault with a twist. But the real kicker comes when God arranges a meet-cute between Peter and his unlikely friend Cornelius, the centurion. And while everything about this situation is totally unfamiliar to Peter, he delivers an incredibly solid sermon bearing witness to the resurrected Jesus to this crowd of outsiders. And then God unleashes a second Pentecost right there in Cornelius' house. And everyone starts babbling like drunks again, just like the Israelites did. And even Peter, totally dumbfounded by this, says, well, gee, that wasn't what I was expecting. I mean, I know we've never done this before, but can anyone tell me why we shouldn't baptise these folks right now? Because if the Holy Spirit fell on them like it fell on us, who on earth are we to say no? You see, that's revision Right there, in response to what God is doing in the world, Peter revises his vision of the kingdom of God. He lets go of the paradigm he has always known, and he allows God to lead him into a profound new understanding. How wonderful would it have been to be in that room that day with Peter. As I stand here this morning with you, As we continue to emerge into whatever we're calling this particular phase of the pandemic, I'm aware that not every moment of revision is accompanied by a whoosh of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes revision happens in the midst of a season of grief and loss, in the midst of circumstances we would never choose and we would never wish on our worst enemy. And I'm grateful that this too is a part of the testimony of Scripture. Because I know that in my own life, the big moments of revision have happened not when I was sitting on a sunbeam counting unicorns. They happened when I was down for the count, hanging by a thread. Literally moments from giving up on God entirely. Like Hagar, having sat down in the desert hoping she would die, and then the God who sees her shows up when no one has ever in her life seen her. Or Jacob, the insufferable favourite son whose whole life gets revised after he gets trafficked by his brothers. And I'm grateful for the faithfulness of David's revision 
in the light of his violent and arrogant mistakes. And for that testy, boundary-pushing, questioning character, Job, demanding that God show up right now in the midst of his circumstances and explain what on earth he did to deserve all this pain. I wouldn't want to mislead you either about some of the consequences of revision because scripture makes it clear that those who practice revision in the light of what God is doing don't always garner ovations. Most often, they're perceived as a threat, Jesus being the ultimate example. Because what does any power structure, any structure of privilege do when someone comes along and questions or threatens the stability of its authority? We all know that story, right? It's called The Empire Strikes Back. And we've witnessed it every single day this week in the midst of the Ukraine. The first move that happens when an empire strikes back is that it looks for blood. And we see this here in Acts as Stephen speaks truth to the heart of power at the Council of Jerusalem, accusing the religious leaders of being a stiff-necked people incapable of revision unwilling to respond, to reimagine the scope of the kingdom of God, even after everyone in Jerusalem saw the biggest Holy Spirit pyrotechnics display known to humanity. Their response to what God was doing wasn't to listen to Stephen and to consider what he had to say. It was to stone him to death. I mean, you've got to stop this push for change before it gets out of hand. You've got to expel the heretics before they do real damage. You've got to send the message about what will happen if you dare to step out of line and have the audacity to say, actually, I've changed my mind. I've come to see this differently. In Acts, we get a front row seat to both the gifts and the risks of revision. The risk of revision is that you will open yourselves up to criticism and critique, most particularly from those who are more invested in defending and maintaining the status quo than they are in welcoming the fullness of God's kingdom. But the gift of revision, can you see that the gift of revision is life? It is learning, it is growth, it is transformation, it is change, it is the freedom from the tyranny of having to be perfect, it is to throw off the shackles of having to always be right. It is the essence of the joy of repentance. The gods of certainty who increasingly rule this world will only give you one shot to get it right. Just one shot. But Yahweh, Yahweh the God of grace, well, he renews his mercy every single day. So as you navigate this wonderful life that you've been given, if you want to act and think in God's new ways, embrace discovery. Get up under the roof and pray. Open the door and listen. Make some new friends and look out for what God is doing, and practice revision. For you are held in the ever-loving, steadfast arms of God, and he will never fail you, which means you are totally free 
free to follow God wherever he may lead you. For the kingdom of God is at hand and it is more wonderful than you could possibly imagine. Amen. I wonder where you are on that continuum of stability and change this morning. Are you in that place of stuckness or actually the answers you've been telling yourself are no longer in reality working in your life? Are you in that place of clinging on, hoping that the change that you can see coming won't actually change? Or are you in that place where you're discombobulated by all the things in your life that are currently moving? I wonder what the Spirit is saying to you this morning. It's the Spirit whispering words of comfort, inviting you to let go, inviting you to embrace the change that is happening in your life, or is God providing a stable rock on which you can stand during this season of grief and loss? Let's pray together. Loving God, we thank you that you are a self-revealing God, that in the gift of Jesus, we saw who you truly were. And so this morning, we hear his message again, to repent, to revise, to open up our lives to the movement of your spirit and to find a new way, a way that leads us towards your heart, God, a way that draws us into your kingdom of love and justice. Whatever that looks like for us, whether we need to let go of the stability and find some change or whether or not we've been so buffeted by change, we need to find some stability. We pray that you will speak life into our life this morning, God. In Jesus' name we pray.